Hello, and welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Camilla Kerslake. Camilla's a Brit-nominated singer, opera performer and charity founder. She first found fame after being signed by Gary Barlow's record label at the age of 19. Since then, Camilla's performed on some of the world's largest stages and sung live for royals and world leaders. Camilla has trained in opera and is currently singing with the English National Opera. Alongside her husband, former England rugby captain Chris Robshaw, Camilla founded the Kerslake Robshaw Foundation to support the education of young people in both sports and music. Camilla and Chris have a young son called Wilding. Camilla Kerslake, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. Well, hello, hello. It's very comfortable. I like it here. Good, good. How are you? I'm good. Just, you know, living my best sort of working mum with a toddler life. I was saying today is actually my day off, but uh, I've been to the gym. I just had a call with a TV show. I'm doing this lovely podcast, which isn't work at all. It's a pleasure. But then I've got to sing for two hours and then I have to go get my son from nursery. So, you know, I'm sure everyone with children will uh, understand the struggle. And what's your two hour sing? Is that kind of rehearsing for something or is that a daily? Well, you know, when you're an opera singer, you do sort of have to train like an athlete. We actually have more lung capacity than an Olympic swimmer or the same. I think it's pretty cool. But um, yeah, practice is just bread and butter, really. And I'm, I'm working on a new show with the English National Opera. We're doing um, Peter Grimes. So I've kind of been so immersed in that musical world. I've sort of let my practice for the other operas that I have coming up go. So it's almost like I have to catch up on yeah my day off. <laughs> Well, a bit of a change of scene today, um, chatting to me and having this conversation. So one of the aims of this podcast is to encourage people to have conversations about death and dying. One of the reasons for that is because we know through our work that if people are better prepared for the end or they know you know what a loved one's wishes might be for example then they'll have a better experience and also from a grief point of view what we know from our listeners is that they find it really helpful hearing other people's experiences as well especially when it's something they're going through themselves and it makes them feel less isolated I think and less alone because you know that can be one of the big parts of grief and bereavement you know that you feel like you're alone in the world and you feel like you're the only one experiencing it so I'd like to start Camilla by asking if you've experienced a significant bereavement in your life 
Oh, I think everyone has, haven't they? I mean, or, you know, everyone past a certain age has. I mean, obviously, everyone's relationships are completely different. And, you know, some people will be a parent or, God forbid, a child, you know, but then some people can have a really beautiful, really close relationship with, for example, like a best friend. And um, what I really love about this podcast is that you allow everyone to explore every kind of bereavement that there is and honour the fact that all feelings are completely valid. I would say almost the most memorable one for me or the most impactful, I think, was losing my grandfather when I was eight. I would say even though, you know, we were definitely sort of living, you know, in in sort of council houses and I had a single mother and all that kind of thing, I still had quite a joyful childhood, largely because of the most wonderful, he was just the most wonderful man, you know, he's working class Welsh so he was always singing he was always larking around I was his absolute pride and joy and you know bless him he really really stepped up you know when it was just my mum and me you know he enabled her to sort of go to night classes he would pick me up after school of course when you're a child you don't know that you just think your naughty grandpa's picking you up to buy you sweeties and you know have sing songs and all that kind of stuff but I remember when he passed, I think because eight, I think you're old enough to understand what's happened. But like I said, nothing terrible up to that point had happened to me. And I just remember feeling absolutely bereft, just so, so devastated. And, you know, he was, like I said, a very wonderful, very kind, very gentle man. And my mother is is very kind, and very gentle. And she felt his loss so acutely. And I think I, I guess at that age, which seems quite young now, I talk about it like this, was sort of the first time I really, really experienced, you know, proper anguish. Mm. Um, he was such a big part of my life. I wouldn't compare him to a father because obviously, you know, I guess it would feel different if they were your actual father. But he was definitely my male role model up until that point. And, you know, I did sort of spend a couple of days a week with him every week. And he was just so positive. You know, he'd had a really tough life. He could have been a negative, you know, horrible guy, but he wasn't, he just sort of spread light wherever he was. And, you know, he was sort of, he would have been born in the sort of forties, but, you know, his best friend was a gay man, which is really unusual when you think about it for that generation. Mm. And he was quite sort of beloved, you know, when he passed, he was found a couple of hours later, which when you think about it for sort of a single older man is, is very, very soon. And it was because his friends at the bowls club, you know, who he always made laugh and he always had a smile and a song for. They were worried about him and they came to find him. And he was only 61, which is no age at all to go. No. I think at eight, I didn't understand that. You know, when you're eight, you think sort of everyone over 30 is old. But yeah. uh, the older I get, the more I realize that, um, you know, it would have been really great to have had him for another 20 years. But um, it definitely taught me a lot. And it was the catalyst for us moving back from New Zealand to the UK. So I guess for that, I am slightly grateful. But um, I think that was the first time I really, really felt bereavement in its, you know, raw form. And can I ask, do you recall how you were told or who told you? I do. I do. It was my mother. And... um, New Zealand's very isolated from other places, so you don't normally go on sort of holidays abroad, as it were. Not that we could have afforded to anyway, but so we were on a sort of little holiday a couple of hours down the road in a little motel. And, uh, of course, this is before mobile phones, so the motel manager called and said, Miss Kersey, you've got a phone call. And she wandered down and she came back, and I sort of had her in my line of sight the whole time, but I think I was playing somewhere. 
And she sat down on a chair and she just started silently weeping. And like I said, I'm from a very proud Welsh working class family. We don't really cry. Um, and it was a real shock. You know, it was the first time I'd sort of seen her cry. I didn't really know what to do. You know, we were very, very close in the way that sort of single mothers and their children often are. And she'd got a sunburn the day before. So I just went over and I sat on her knee and I held her and I said, oh, mummy, is your sunburn hurting? Because, you know, that's your frame of reference when you're a child, isn't it? Physical pain causes tears. And, of course, that made her cry even harder in the same way that if my two-year-old does something adorable, I'm off. And she said, no, I'm afraid I've got some some really sad news for you. And she really choked it out, and I'm getting choked up now. But she said, Papa's died. And I can't really remember the rest. It was a bit of a blur because, obviously, you know, I think we were on day two of our sort of supposed four-day little holiday Mm. we got sort of packed up and and driven home and I just remember it being a real blur and also because he was so well known in the community and he was really quite beloved sort of it was quite difficult the days before the funeral because people would sort of stop us in the supermarket and they'd stop us in the street and they'd talk to us about it and for me it was just sort of confusing obviously having all these strangers talk to us but for my mum it was just devastating and I mean, ultimately, she wasn't emotionally able to stay in New Zealand. We, you know, we had to move all the way back here just for her to sort of get closure on it. So it was a very dramatic life event in her life. I mean, for me as well, but obviously it's not the same when you're a child, is it? I was asking that question about how you found out because there's lots of conversation often with families <laughs> when someone's died and or someone's been diagnosed with a terminal illness about how you talk to children, how you tell mm. children, how you break the news. Do mm. you tell them and how much information do you give them? And mm. that often understandably comes from a place of fear and, you know, protection naturally for parents. To, exactly. You know, you don't, you don't want to upset your child but actually we know it's best to be honest and truthful Mm -hmm. and to not overload children with information but actually just give them the news Mm -hmm. in a way that they'll understand depending Mm -hmm. on their age and then allow them to lead and ask the questions and just answer the questions they ask rather than you know giving them lots of information and detail I think children are incredibly logical I remember, you know, I feel like you don't see the shades of grey when you're a child. And I remember, you know, being told that he had died and that I wouldn't see him again because he was in heaven or the next realm or wherever you choose to believe someone goes. And I remember being absolutely devastated, but I'm so glad I was told and I'm so glad I knew You know, I'm so glad I didn't just have to figure it out over sort of months of not seeing him, you know, because it was like ripping off a plaster. It was painful at first, but, you know, then I was able to process it. It's interesting you should say that because uh, my husband's father died of a heart attack aged 40 and he left behind a three-year-old, a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. And obviously his mother, this is her soulmate, she was devastated in a way that I can't even fathom and I hope I don't ever have to. But um, I know the boys didn't go to the funeral because, I mean, it was probably so much for her. She probably didn't want to fall apart in front of them, and understandably so. But 
whenever I ask Chris about that time period, he just sort of says he didn't understand why his mum was so sad all the time. And what he started doing was he stopped telling her things that he thought would upset her. So he stopped telling her if he, if, you know, if he fell off his bike and skinned his knee, he'd come in and he'd sort of fix it himself because he didn't want to add to her mental load and all that kind of stuff. And absolutely no blame because she did absolutely incredibly raising those three boys. And she 100% did what she thought was best and also probably what experts would have said was best at the time. Hmm. But you know, if, if the boys had been there, maybe they would have had a better understanding of what was happening. Maybe they would have been able to grieve a bit more. I know my husband, who went on to become a rugby player, he was so angry. He was so angry for such a long time that he'd lost this wonderful man who he idolised. And he couldn't understand why. And he didn't really understand why it had happened. And, you know, he wasn't at the funeral. He didn't get to see everyone grieving. He was so angry for such a long time. And I almost feel like if he had just sort of been allowed to have that moment of extreme pain or just just outburst he would have felt better I, I feel like as British people and and you know his family he's he's from quite a well-to-do family sort of particularly sort of upper class British people I think it is changing but maybe don't express themselves as much as sort of people from other nations like Italy or something for example would and you know, in my personal experience, if you don't get it out, it's going to raise its head in another way and maybe not in a positive way. I don't know. It's all my opinion and I might be completely wrong, but I feel like if and when it happens with my son, I'll probably just try and tell him as gently as I can in a way someone his developmental age can understand. Yeah. And, that, you know, you mentioned the word understanding and and so often and I think in your experience as if as you've described in your husband's as well then that's the time when you're going to be developing your understanding about death and mm -hmm. about life and about what those things mean and what we do know now is and I guess you know this has changed over time because even for me growing up there wasn't those significant losses when I was that young but you know definitely um you know with with kind of friends and peers and family members mm -hmm. then I knew that it was all about protecting children from it and not upsetting them and mm -hmm. but actually things like a funeral so those rituals around death like funerals mm -hmm. they're really helpful for developing mm -hmm. that basic understanding because mm -hmm. actually what you can do is you know you can say to a child the body doesn't work anymore the legs and the hands and the heart and they can't eat anymore or you know depending on the child's age and what questions they're asking but actually it can be very abstract confusing and upsetting the whole funeral the coffin but what we do know is when young people are included in those rituals, then it does help later on. You know, it helps with the grief process and developing that understanding of death. I actually did an impromptu speech at my grandpa's funeral. It was very strange. I mean, obviously, there was sort of the planned ones, but sort of I remember because the funeral director lived I mean, about three doors up the road. And like I said, he was one of the community who just adored him. And he sort of put it to the floor and he was like, would anyone like to say anything? And I don't know why, but I was just like, I would. And I remember exactly what I said. And I'm going to tear up again. I said, he was my papa and I really, really loved him. 
And of course, that set everyone off, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, guys. How lovely you got to do that. <laughs> and how yeah. lovely you just stood up and did it as well and felt safe enough to be included. Yeah, well, he was that kind of man. He would have wanted me to. That's a lovely story, Camilla. I, I love the fact that that was even an offer at the funeral. I know, that, it's you know, gorgeous, that, that isn't it? was like, does anybody want to say anything? Yeah, that's really nice and, and very good for people, I think, to be included on that level, regardless of their relationship with the individual, because it's that kind of stuff that helps us in our grief. I think so. Anyone who was holding back tears wasn't after that, let me tell you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, set them all off. Um, just thinking about bereavement and grief, I touched on earlier that people who listen to the podcast who are grieving themselves now, they find it helpful just hearing other people's experiences as well of grief. Mm -hmm. And and I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about some things that you found helpful when you've been grieving. Well, 2020 to 2021 was a bit of a triple whammy for my family. My grandma, she'd had Parkinson's for a long time and she'd sort of done the, you know, living in sort of assisted living to living in a nursing home to sort of being bedridden. So it, it wasn't a massive surprise. You know, we kept getting calls saying, oh, this is going to be it. And then it kept not being it. So we just sort of expected her to rally. But with that one, I'm sure lots of people say this, but she was so miserable. It was really sad and it was really tough on my mum. But you know, she's free. The thing is, she was still in New Zealand. So that for me is is a very difficult part of living so far away from the bulk of my family is, is when people die, you don't get to say goodbye often. And I almost feel like, well, if I didn't get a chance to say goodbye, almost what's the point in flying for 35 hours or whatever it is? just to go to a funeral and be sad. So, I mean, I'm very lucky. Obviously, now we have sort of live streams and Zooms and everything. So I definitely feel like I could be a part of it. But that was tricky. And then just after that, my very young, very fabulous aunt, Sibylla, went. And she had cancer, but um, she was given the all clear. And then she had a stroke, which we were like, what? Because she was in her early 60s, like slim, healthy. I mean, she'd done the classic, smoked like a chimney, drunk like a fish in her youth. But, you know, she'd sort of really cut back and she was very healthy other than that. So then she had a stroke and then she was sort of recovering and she was speaking and walking again. And we were like, oh, great. You know, and then I got a call on the day of my baby shower, actually, that um, she'd passed. And it was it was so arresting because I was so instantly devastated I just felt crushed just because it was we thought she was getting better you know like she'd been given the all clear and then you know she was recovering and it, it just it felt like like a like a hammer to the chest kind of thing but at the same time it was it was just so confusing because also you know dozens of people had decided that that was the day they were going to get together and celebrate the birth of my first child and it was almost like I feel that one I definitely haven't processed because I almost had to sort of get it together and go and enjoy my baby shower like just because of the effort that everyone had put in so it's almost like I pushed it to the back of my mind and I put it in a little box and I was like I will grieve this but I can't do it today 
I can't let everyone down kind of thing, which I'm sure is something that will resonate with a lot of your listeners. But what I feel is that I haven't let it out yet. And I am slightly worried about how that's going to manifest itself because I did adore her. But we'll see. I'll keep you updated with that one. And uh, then, oh, my goodness, it's just been a really tough sort of, was it just over a year? I think it was bang on a year because my grandma died on my mom's birthday as well, which was super great. Um, And then my uncle, also on my mother's side, um, he was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma when he was 19. And he was given, I think, six months to live. But flash forward 40 years, he's had Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, I think, eight times. And I think they finally figured out that they never really got rid of it. They just got it to an undetectable size and then it started growing again. But, you know, he was able to live a wonderful life. He wrote a book called Life, Happiness and Cancer, which is a bestseller in New Zealand. It helped a lot, a lot of people. You know, he gave up, I mean, hours and hours, days, weeks of his time talking to other young people who'd been diagnosed or other people who were sort of serial survivors, as I guess he would call them. He was able to get married. He has two beautiful boys. And I feel very lucky to have them as cousins. You know, they're a lot younger than me because of obviously complications because of chemo and all that kind of thing. But um, I'm very glad that they're in the family because otherwise it would now just be my mum and I. But that was another one where he just kept surviving. He just kept surviving. So when he passed, I didn't realise, but he'd gone into hospice sort of a day or two before. But again, in New Zealand, and his wife was, again, losing her soulmate, you know, dealing with two sort of bereft preteen and teenage boys. So we did find out. And thanks to, I'm sure, these angels who worked in the hospice, he was able to compose an email to my mother, a beautiful, beautiful email. I don't think he would have been able to speak at that point. Um, So for her, it was a great, great comfort. They didn't have the best upbringing, you know, like it was very difficult moving around for them. And my grandma, bless her, was a bit of a tricky character. But uh, I just can't, I can't fathom people having that much kindness and patience in their heart to sit with a dying man and notate what he was saying and I mean I'm sure it would have been difficult to understand and all that kind of stuff but to send it to his beloved sister who was half a world away so Mm -hmm. I'm really grateful for him but I definitely haven't processed all of that it was almost like it just kept coming does that make sense yeah there's so much so close together so how can you even begin to process it when there's another one so soon after yeah I mean he was about 10 months after my grandma and I'm I'm I am very pleased he managed to hang on because it would have been horrendous for her to lose him Mm. um but I feel like almost as a young mother or a, a mother of a very young child, my son is two. So when all this was happening, you know, it was his baby shower. And then, you know, the next one, like next one, next one, next one, you know, the next one, he wasn't even one. And then the next one, he was sort of 18 months. And it was almost like, it, it's almost just like a sort of power through, like keep calm, carry on, just keep going kind of thing. But like I said, I definitely haven't processed it in a good enough way to know that I tend to think of grief it's like something physical that sort of lives in my body that needs to be physically expelled, you know, like breath. 
And I definitely don't feel like it's left to my body. Um, I'm doing an opera at the moment called Peter Grimes, and it's very, very sad. And it's just sort of my reactions, like on stage when I'm technically in character. But, you know, they're so much more emotionally heavy than they usually would. And I just think it's sort of the grief, just desperately trying to leave my body in any way it can. And I mean, it's making my performance great. <laughs> but um... Yeah, well, I was just thinking, you know, I wonder <laughs> if that's, I wonder if that's some of the process. It, it um, almost feels like a very safe way of it, you know, to sort of not overwhelm me, to sort of let it go in teeny tiny parcels, you know, in a safe way where I can't let it overwhelm me because I've got the next scene to do, if you know what I mean. But um, it's going to be interesting to see how <laughs> the last sort of 18 months manifests. I hope it doesn't manifest in sort of a, a bad way, but we'll see. Maybe I should do sort of lots of sort of singing of spirituals and stuff that tends to do it. Marie Curie offers free support over the phone to anyone with an illness they're likely to die from and those close to them. Our team of experts can offer practical and emotional help with medical, financial and general queries about end of life and bereavement. Call our free support line on 0800 090 2309 or visit mariecurie.org.uk forward slash support. Well, I was just thinking about, you know, maybe there isn't this big moment, you know, maybe there isn't this big moment of overwhelm to come. And I think there's some of the kind of grief process probably goes on in the background as well and maybe manifests itself in other ways that we might be less aware of. But I think as you're describing, just being conscious of it and thinking about Mm. it so you know whilst at work and doing this play where there's lots of kind of you know there's 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 a need for you to be sad or kind of tap into that whatever's within you you know then they're opportunities I think as well aren't they to even just see them as opportunities to use that as you're saying to kind of get some of it out do you know what I was also thinking when you were talking you got me thinking about what do you do when the person who's died lives thousands of miles away and you just can't get there some people can't get there can't afford a flight no it's so expensive you know and and there'll be lots of people listening who've had those experiences and so while you were talking i was thinking about and actually this could still be something that might be helpful for you when you feel ready or when you have time but is you know to think about well what kind of rituals can i do here to honour that person, you know, so I haven't got a gravestone to go and visit or I'm, you know, I'm not going to a place where ashes have been scattered, but actually can I make something or create something and whether that's going to a favourite park or the woods or getting some flowers and uh, I don't know, I'm thinking off the top of my head, you know, kind of throw them into a river or what whatever's meaningful to the person mm. or whatever might be meaningful to you, but actually make a ritual out of it, make a point of it whether that's a morning or an afternoon you get the family Mm. together you go along you might sing you might choose some poems to read but it's it's not just about remembering them in the everyday it's about actually having a specific event isn't it dedicated to them do you know what we did for my lovely stepfather who married my mum when uh, I was five and it's just the most wonderful man. When his mother and father died, there was a few years between them, but it was still very sad and very hard on the family. But we were still over here and it was, you know, we still weren't in the financial situation to send the whole family back. You know, we paid for dad to go back and that was it. 
Um, we did uh, video montages or there was video montages made and just going through our photos and, you know, sort of back then, sorry, kids, scanning them onto the computer and choosing which ones and just looking at photos of, you know, my dad when he was like 21 and he was still living in that house with his, you know, crazy 80s shaggy hair and ridiculous milk bottle glasses. And, mm-hmm. you know, just of them looking young and happy and I mean, usually drunk because they were normally taken at family events. Um, I found that very, very useful. But it's it's interesting what you just said about the flowers or the poems. And because I actually think I mean, honestly, just speaking to you about it is amazing because I actually haven't spoken to anyone about it. I definitely mm-hmm. think people don't want to burden people with their grief, but I'm, I'm sure most people have someone who would, at least one person who would be very, very willing to just sit and listen. But um, yeah, we, I think, yeah, maybe sort of a little memorial would be very, very helpful for us as a family. Like I said, working class Welsh, we keep everything bottled up and sort of hidden. I definitely don't think that's healthy. Um, so I will speak to my mum after this phone call because I think it might do her some good, to be honest. Yeah, and I just think there's something in that as well, what you just said about just having the conversation. And so you can mm. think, well, it might be a year on or it might be 18 months on, but actually have the conversation, you know, set some time aside. And I think, you know, with your mum, it's like as long as she's not in the supermarket when you call her. Yeah. You know, it's about <laughs> but let's talk family. about your your family now, your sad dead family, <laughs> yeah, right, while you're at Morrison's. Yeah. Um, but you know it's about kind of choosing that time to do that when it feels right and it's nice Camilla can I ask what I always do in the podcast when somebody um, is talking about a loved one who's died I ask if they're happy to tell me the person's name and I know you started by talking about your grandfather but you've mentioned a few other significant losses and would you be happy even just to say their first names well, my grandfather was called Billy William. Mm-hmm. My tante Isabella, my auntie Sib, uh, my uncle Phil, and Sylvia was my grandmother's name, which I think is a beautiful name. Mm, I agree. Thank you. I think there's something really powerful in saying people's names as well. Who died? Yeah, definitely. My, my parents have died, and I just kind of read. I mean, my dad died in 2017. My mum died in 2018, and I. I, I, I said, of, of course, I don't forget them. <laughs> but, no. but I don't say them. I don't say no. them. Often. You stop saying them. And of course, when they're alive and when these people are around, then you say their names all the time. Yeah. And when they've died, we stop because there's no need to. And people stop no. asking. And then that's, you stop yeah. storytelling. And as you're saying, I'm not going to kind of, you know, well, I do sometimes randomly talk about my parents. Um, but yeah, there's something really nice in saying their name as well and saying their names. So I agree. That might be something you can do with your mum as well. I definitely think as well. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure what it is about me, but I very often have people sort of tell me things you know or or sort of get quite deep about things that have happened to them or you know traumatic events or all that kind of stuff I have a lot of people come out to me as well I'm not sure why Mm -hmm. um I was talking to a girl I'm I'm doing this opera with who's you know she's only in her 30s and she's recently lost her mum she's obviously just devastated about it And she said, and I do agree, she just said, so many people feel so awkward talking to you about it. They don't want to upset you. They don't want to kick things off. Like, And I would just say, whenever someone talks to me about these things, I just listen. 
you know what I mean? If they want, you know, I, I don't know. I'm quite emotionally strong and I think that does come across. So maybe that's why. But, um, you know, I'm not so busy that I can't sit for 10 minutes and just listen to someone. And yes, never the most comfortable conversation. And yeah, it brings up lots of emotions and all that kind of stuff. But if you're able, you know, if you're in a, a position mentally where you think that it won't cost you anything, just listen. I really wish more people would and not be like, oh, no, you'll be fine. Because I just that's just I find that selfish I'm trying to make everything OK all the time. You've got to let people sit in their feelings, you know, because probably after about five or 10 minutes, they will be like, oh, anyway, you know, and, and, and change the subject. But that would be my advice to maybe people listening who have someone who's just lost someone. Just listen. You don't need to offer advice or whatever or anything unless unless they ask for it, in which case definitely do. And as soon as they change the subject and start making jokes, change the subject and start making jokes back. But just just sit and just listen. And it doesn't matter if you just go over to watch the football or just be like, oh, I was just in the neighborhood and I've got these biscuits. Why don't I, you know what I mean? Mm. That's mm. That would be what I would say, but that's just me personally. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're great. They're, they're great top tips. And, um, you know, I think that just listening um, and following their lead. And as you say, mm. if they break it and want to laugh and start to tell a joke, they've had enough, yeah. then you laugh, um, you know. At the Go to. It's a good one. Um, so just changing um, tack slightly, what we know in our work is if people who certainly are diagnosed with a terminal illness, then we know that having some of these open conversations about what they want with regards to care. So, um, you know, what, what they might want for the future, planning, if you like, for that. Mm -hmm. um, and having some conversations even around practical things, so writing a will or mm -hmm. writing down funeral wishes. We know that if those things are in place before somebody dies, then often that, you know, is a better experience for those who are left behind. Um, so thinking about planning for the future and some of those practical things, can I ask, do you ever think about your own death? I think you don't when you're in your 30s. <laughs> Um, certainly yeah. after my son was born, all of a sudden everything changed. I started living a lot cleaner. I started sort of looking at biohacks and, you know, I eat a lot better and all that kind of stuff because, and I'm sure everyone will agree, you know, you want to live well for as long as you can for your children and for yourself. Yeah. So well, we need to update our will to include our child, that's for sure. But I know, for example, when my aunt Zabilla passed, because it was so sudden, because she was given the all clear, she hadn't put anything in place. She hadn't put my uncle on any of her bank accounts or her phone statements. or, And I think he's still dealing with the bureaucracy of it to this day. And I just can't imagine on top of losing this woman because they found each other so late. Well, not so late in life. They were both in their 40s. And I think we'd sort of written him off just thinking he was going to be a bachelor forever. And they found each other and they were this, they were just gorgeous together. I can't even explain it. It was like from Germany to New Zealand and they somehow managed to find each other. And wow. um, it was just such a mess. And it's just such an ongoing mess for yeah. him. He'll never obviously move on, but it's it's almost like he's unable to move forward. You know, he's a young man, like he wasn't even 60 when she died. Mm. You know, he potentially has, you know, sort of 30, 40 more years. 
and um you know he, he couldn't didn't have access to the joint assets and you know he, the mortgage and all that kind of stuff and it was just it was it was so awful for him and actually after it happened sort of my mum wrote down all of her passwords and my dad wrote down all of his passwords and you know my husband now has a excel spreadsheet with all of his bits and bobs so i mean i definitely think that is a horrible thing to have to encounter but i'm very glad that i've done it um but i think also as well it can be so overwhelming like I'm a big planner, but just because I have ADHD and I get overwhelmed if, if I don't sort of write everything down, I think the thought of having to plan a funeral when I hadn't had any conversations with the individual about what they want would just make it so much harder. It would just be such a heavy burden to make sure that you were doing what they wanted. But at the same time, you know, my grandma, my my mum's mum, didn't have a funeral. And my uncle, you know, the one with Hodgkin's lymphoma, he also didn't have a funeral. And I almost feel like there's not a full stop for them, like what we were talking about earlier. There was sort of not a moment to sort of pin your grief to. There was not a day that, you know, you sort of celebrated this person's life. And I personally have found that very, very hard. But at the same time, it was what they wanted. So, we're, you know, we're honouring what they wanted. But I think personally for me, I would want my relatives to have a day you know a place something you know like a tree or something they could just go and sit under because I have felt a bit lost at sea you know a bit unmoored not having any of those things if that makes sense like my mum's father has a bench you know and he has a bench and we sit there and we look out and it's in New Zealand and it's beautiful and you look at the ocean and you watch the boats go by and it's stunning and I don't have that for those two and that's very difficult and i know some people we get on this podcast and i have this conversation with them about whether they thought about their own death or any planning and um you know sometimes some people will say not going to plan anything it's for those who are left behind to make those decisions because yeah. it's, it's it's what they want and what they're going to need and what's going to be yeah. best for them but i mean there's that yeah it depends what it is because then of course i think with some of the more practical things like a will um yeah you can get into lots of sticky stuff afterwards mm-hmm. and as you said yeah. you know you just want to be able to spend that time to grieve and think about the person mm. and then actually you've got enough to deal with without mm. having to deal with finances and solicitors mm-hmm. and legal stuff um can i just ask about um legacy so is that something that's important to you like how you'd like to be remembered you know we have our charity the kersick robshaw foundation which you know aims to empower young people through music and sport whether they want a career in it or whether it's just to boost their overall happiness and i would love it if by the time I'm, I don't know, 70, we'd had thousands and thousands of youngsters from humble beginnings through the charity to benefit it. I would love it if I went to the Royal Albert Hall and, oh, she's one of ours. Oh, he's one of ours. You know, that would be amazing for me personally. I just think, obviously, I started in one place in the council house and I've ended up in a completely another. And I just sort of feel like, if you don't leave the world slightly better than you entered it, maybe you're not living in the correct way. And, you know, it can be something as small as, you know, my grandfather, who was just a wonderful, wonderful, kind, kind man, and who raised my mother to be the same, who then, you know, did her best with me. But, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that more than sort of anything like massive and grandiose. 
sounds like giving forward. <laughs> that makes sense. You know, with the charity and the yeah. just sort of giving a step up. I like to think. Yeah. Just a little hand back down to sort of reach up and pull the next person into the light, kind of thing. Yeah, no, that's lovely. That's really lovely. Um, I've just got one last question, and that is, how has it been today being on the Marie Curie couch and having these conversations? Oh, my goodness. It's been like a therapy session. I love oh, it. Good. Like I said, I just I, there's a lot that I don't feel like I've processed because I feel like the whole world was going through like a trauma in 2020 and all that kind of stuff. And then I had a son and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I feel... Um, feel very uh, emotionally opened, shall I say, and I'm, I'm definitely going to broach the subject of a potential memorial to my parents and, and just see what they say, because I know personally it would be very useful for me, and I'm yeah. sure it would be very useful for them as well. And in whatever shape that takes as well, isn't it, you know, because it, um, you know, it, might, it might just be going and finding that tree to sit under, right? Now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Camilla Kerslake, thank you so much for joining me on the Marie Curie Couch today. You know, thank you for your generosity and openness and honesty. Lovely to meet you. Me too. So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help, from planning ahead to coping with bereavement. You can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. This podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Content. The music featured is Time Lapse by Pan Oceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>